Welcome back to CFO Weekly, where we're talking with financial leaders about how to build efficiency in their teams, create time for strategy, and ultimately get results with your host, Megan Weiss. Let's jump right in. Today, my guest is Jean Corvino. Jean is a United States Air Force veteran, having served in the 16th Tactical Reconnaissance Squadron at Shaw Air Force Base for four years. Jean has an Associate of Arts, a Bachelor of Science, and a Master's in Business Administration. He's worked for Southern Diversified Distributors, SDD, for 32 years in a variety of roles and has served as Senior VP and CFO since 2001. He was the president of the logistics subsidiary, TransSouth Logistics, from 2009 to 2020, and in January 2020 was named as the president of SDD's wholesale distribution business, William M. Bird and Company Incorporated. Gene serves on the board of directors for SDD and has served on the board of advisors for Charleston Southern University where he also taught a variety of business classes from 2007 to 2009. He was the chair on a charitable board called Faith in Action where he served the persecuted church throughout the world with an emphasis on Africa. In 2002, he was a member of a small group that went into Sudan during their civil war and took medical and other supplies to the front lines, where he witnessed atrocities firsthand. Gene is a certified credit executive, a certificate granted by the National Association of Credit Managers. Gene resides in Charleston, South Carolina with his wife, Laura. Gene, thank you so much for joining me today. Hey, Megan, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to today's discussion, which is focused on becoming a more creative and strategic thinker. And I think whether a CFO is considering making the move to become a CEO or president or not, the CFO role itself is definitely moving in a more strategic direction. So let's get started. Sounds good. Tell me about your career progression and how you got to where you are today. Sure. Um, I'll take you all the way back to the very beginning where I uh, was getting out of the Air Force. I joined the Air Force right out of high school. I really didn't have a clear direction of what I wanted to do, and so I didn't take the traditional college route right away. I joined the Air Force, served in uh, a tactical reconnaissance squadron for four years, and then got out and was fortunate enough to get a job in the insurance business. And I did that for a couple of years, uh, had a little stint in the mortgage business, and then landed with the company that I'm with now, actually 32 years ago. That's how long it's been. And the company then was one company called William M. Bird and Company. And went to work for them as an assistant credit manager trainee. Did that for a little while, for about a year and a half, learning the business. And really didn't start to get traction until about a year and a half in when the company hired a man by the name of Dave Thompson. And Dave really taught me what it meant to be a credit manager. Um, While I had finished two years of college while I was in the Air Force, he really took me to the University of Dave Thompson when it came to credit and finance. And I learned a a tremendous amount from him. He opened my eyes to a world of, of information and it was a great experience. We worked together for about four years before he took another job outside of the company and and they brought in another man named uh, Art Reichek to be the, the CFO as our company's first CFO, and they promoted me to Dave's job. So it was a great preparation working under Dave to, uh, to be promoted, and I became uh, 
the director of financial services uh, at that point, 1994. And then when Art came as the first CFO, I worked under him for a couple of years and then became VP of finance in 2000. Worked as VP of finance under our uh, CFO at the time and became CFO in 2001. From 2001 through 2009, I continued as chief financial officer of the company. And in that time, in 2003, William Byrd became a subsidiary of a holding company that we established, headquartered in Charleston. And we spun off our operations group to a company called TransSouth Logistics. So created the holding company, spun off our operations group. William Byrd became a sister company to TransSouth and a subsidiary of Southern Diversified. I continued on as chief financial officer of the holding company and the subsidiary companies and worked through 2009 where I was named the president of our logistics group, TransSouth Logistics. I continued my role as CFO uh, with the holding company as I performed the role of president uh, with TransSouth. I did that through uh, this past this past January when I was named uh, president of William M. Burden Company, which is the flooring distribution business and the company that's been in business since 1865. So that's the, the linear progression. Those are the, the positions I've held in the timeline. Yeah, sounds like some great experience. And uh, it's not often these days that someone's with a company for 32 years. Yeah, it's been a, it's been a great experience working for uh, just a tremendous family, the Haygood family. I uh, couldn't ask for a better company to work for. They've, they've been like family to me. That's great. So are there any particular stories or career moves that stand out in your mind as turning points throughout your career? You know, definitely. Um, I've had a lot of people ask me that question. And so, you know, I've kind of put it into four categories, four pillars of um, discovery, if you will. And they're really under um, belief, preparedness, gratefulness, and expectancy. And I'll um, talk about those experiences. So the first one happened very early on when I got out of the Air Force. I went to work for the life insurance company of Georgia, which I don't even think is in existence anymore, and was hired in as what they were calling a new market agent. And they were bringing on some new products. Universal Life was brand new at the time. And I went through this training program and, and I tell you what, in, in the matter of two or three days of being immersed in this new product, I believed everything they were telling me. I loved the product. I believed all of what I was being taught. There was no issue of doubt. I just accepted it and, uh, as fact. And this was in October when I was hired. And it, during the year, they had established a, a club that you could qualify for, a president's club. And if you hit um, you know, certain sales goals, you could qualify for that club. Well, it was October, and everybody else had had, obviously, from January to October to get their numbers in, and, and they had a pretty much a 10-month head start on me. But, you know, the whole believability piece, Megan, I didn't, I didn't even think about that. All I thought about was what a great opportunity I had with this product and it was brand new and I, and I just ran with it. 
And in the last like 10 weeks of the year, I produced enough to finish number one in the office. Wow. And I went to the president's club and um, I just looked back a couple years after that and kind of laughed and thought the, the reason I did that wasn't because I was anything special or because I was somehow more qualified than the other guys. On the contrary, I was the least qualified. I was the newest. I was a 22-year-old kid. What got me those results was believability. Yep. I absolutely believed in the product. I believed in the process, and I believed I could do it. And so I did it. And so that's um, I, I, I reflect on that oftentimes because I think so often we let obstacles stand in our way. We, we see giants in the land instead of seeing the opportunity. So that's the, that's the first story. The second one, preparedness. Um, in 1995, the company was interviewing for a chief financial officer. I was the director of financial services. I was going to school at night to finish my bachelor's degree, and I was really interested in progressing with the company. And when I found out they were interviewing, I went to the CEO. His name is Maybank Haygood. He's a great guy. He's one of the owners, and he's been a mentor of mine and a, and a close friend for 30 years. And he sat me down. I, I asked him, I said, I hear you're interviewing for a CFO. And he said, yes. And I said, I'd like to interview. I'd like to be interviewed. He was very gracious, and he said, Gene, I'll interview you, but I'm going to tell you you're not ready. And he, and he laid out a path for me of things that I needed to do education-wise, develop, personal development, just basic things like uh, improving public speaking. And he, he told me I needed to go to Toastmasters. And he, you know, he just pointed me in a number of directions that I needed to, to pursue to be prepared for that position if I was serious about it. And so, you know, I was disappointed, but uh, head down, I went to work and uh, continued to strive towards the goal. And again, it happened when Art Reichek left the company the position was open. I went to him again and I asked him again. I said, I want to be interviewed for the CFO role. And he said, Gene, I'll interview you for the job, but you're still not ready. And he talked about not being done with my bachelor's degree. I, had, I needed to focus on getting that done, looking at an MBA, certifications. And I was, I was like, man, I've been working so hard. But it really, it, it taught me, we're not do anything. Yep. We're not entitled to anything. We need to earn it. And it really lit the fire under me. I got my bachelor's degree done. I got certified at the highest level in credit management and started my MBA. I became a, um, a certified Toastmaster. And um, when, the, when the job became open the third time, I didn't have to ask for the interview. He gave me the job. Wow. So... I learned preparedness in that, in that experience. The third story around gratefulness has nothing to do with business. In 2000, I joined a, a faith-based organization and I went to work on their board called Faith in Action. And it was a group of, of guys that they literally serve the war-torn areas of the world. It was headed up by a man who fought in the Rhodesian Special Forces back when Rhodesia was going through their civil war before that country fell. And he was um, a bit of a wild man. And his experiences, when you hear him talk, are just, they're, they're nothing like we would be used to uh, 
um, in our American upbringing. And he went through this, this war, the Civil War. He literally, at the age of 19, 20, 21, his job was to kill people every day. Wow. And his job was to kill the enemy. And when, he, when the country fell and he fled to South Africa, he was embittered, he felt betrayed, he was angry, and in his words, he was just a mess. And at 22, 23 years old, he turned his life completely around and he dedicated his life to serving the people of Africa that he had hated, the indigenous, the black Africans that he had fought against and hated. And he, he developed a love for these people that I'd never experienced before. And he was serving them, he was dedicating his life to them. He was going into all different areas of Africa and bringing them food and medical supplies and training. And I met him through this organization and he took me on a trip in 2002 to the country of Sudan, right in the middle of their civil war. And we landed four miles from the front lines. You could hear bombs dropping, the ground would shake. When we were setting up our tents, uh, you could feel the, the ground shaking. The next morning we woke up and started marching with a bunch of troops up to the front lines. At the same time, they were bringing the wounded back from the, from the night before. And so here I am, a 40-year-old man from uh, America and have never seen anything like this before. And, and they're bringing these guys back with bullet wounds to the head and shrapnel wounds. And I'm, these guys are coming past me and I'm in the middle of it. And it's like a shock to your system. And I think I got a, a very, very small taste of what these troops must suffer from when they get post-traumatic stress disorder, because I'm not comparing myself to them by any stretch because I was there for a week. So it was nothing compared to being at war and being in, in all that, but just the shock to the system of witnessing those atrocities, it, it was um, something that's hard to describe. I imagine. And, and um, what really struck me was their attitude. These people were fighting for something they believed in. And the whole village that was receiving these people, they had no medical supplies. They had no food. They were receiving them back, and, and they were just so happy to see them. And they were doing everything they could to help them. And that night, after going up to the front lines, we spoke to the troops. I got an opportunity to address the troops. It was, it was an incredible experience. And then we came back to, to the camp. And I'll never forget going to sleep, laying in my tent, and hearing the whole village. It was 12 o'clock at night, and they were celebrating the return of these men. And they were singing, and they were talking, and they were laughing. And they were so grateful. They were grateful and they were hopeful. And they had nothing. And it really taught me something about appreciating the blessings that we have in our life and the things that we miss because we're so focused on the things we think we should have or the things that we don't have that we think are going to bring us happiness. The reality is for them, the hope and the appreciation and the gratefulness was just in that moment being with each other, being safe for the moment, um, being apart from the war, and the hope that was in them for a better life. And I, I took that with me, and, and it's been there um, ever since. 
And it really speaks to me in times where I find myself, you know, grumbling about something or complaining or thinking I, I need something I don't have. And the reality is we have everything we need and, um, you know, we should be so grateful for the, for the things that are right in front of us, the blessings that are right here in front of us. Yeah. So that taught me gratefulness. The last story um, is around expectancy, and this is um, really about being prepared and, and see an opportunity in the middle of a challenge. And this is the one that probably would, will speak mostly to people that are CFOs and are looking for advancement in their careers and how to look for those opportunities. So 2005, I got called into Maybank's office, and he sat me down, and he was very serious, and he said, I had some meetings over the weekend, and I want to let you know that this major supplier of ours would like to buy our company. And as he spoke, the only thing I heard was buy our company. And in that moment, as he's speaking, I'm thinking, I'm out of a job. 18 years and I'm gone because this company's going to buy us. They're going to take all of the functions that I'm over back to their home office. They're not going to need it here. And he went on to explain the process and what we were going to do. We were going to hire an investment bank and we were going to have to put together a valuation. We were going to have to go to this home office or this manufacturer and we were going to have to present to the president and the board as part of the process because the board had approved um, buying a distributor, but we had to go through this process. And so I knew I was going to go through this process, but I could not focus on it. All I could focus on in that moment was I was out of a job. And before I left his office, he said, Gene, I want you to trust me. I want you to invest yourself in this process. And if at the end of the day, when we're sold, if you're out of a job, and I never even brought it up. He brought it up. So he knew exactly what I was thinking. Yeah. He said, so if you're out of a job, Robert and I, Robert's his brother and another shareholder, Robert and I promise that we will do everything we can to help you uh, land a new job somewhere else if we can't persuade them to keep you on the with the purchasing company. So I said, okay. And I started in the process. And working with this investment bank was something I had never done before. I had never been involved in an acquisition. I had never been involved in doing valuations. I had not done the kind of forecasts that you need for a presentation like this. I had done, you know, operating forecasts and forecasts around our budgets, and but nothing that was as forward-looking and that was as complex as um, an investment bank would expect. And so I went to work with this investment bank, and I'm learning all these terms and all the, the these different processes and. You know, I'm literally having to Google terms uh, in between meetings to try to catch up with what these guys are talking about. And I was the one that was tasked with having to make a presentation to the president and the board. And so we go through the preparation. I feel like I'm, uh, you know, a college on steroids learning this information. And I'm learning the every aspect of an acquisition, every step of an acquisition. And, you know, I'm starting to think about it in terms of if I was going to buy or sell the company, how I would look at it. And I was starting to think about ways to negotiate the deal. And long story short, we go up to their home office. We make the presentation and we, it was a great presentation. We're high-fiving each other afterwards. It was somewhat bittersweet for me because I 
I felt like, you know, we just won the day. Certainly they're going to buy us and chips are going to fall where they fall. I'll probably be out of a job, but, you know, I felt really good about the process and I felt good about, you know, delivering on the presentation. And long story short, the board decided not to go down the route of rolling up distribution. They didn't buy us. And that experience prepared me to be the lead on three acquisitions that we would end up doing in 2009, 2010, and 2012. And so the lesson in that for me was when the challenge comes to be expectant, to look for the opportunity in the middle of the challenge because it's going to be there. And I didn't see it on the front end, but it sure prepared me and, and uh, was a great experience for leading me to doing those acquisitions in 2009, 10, and 12. Wow, those are some great stories and, and definitely some amazing experiences. So in your opinion, what are the competencies necessary to be a president or CEO? So that's a good question. And I'll say this, these would be competencies that I aspire to, not that I feel like I have a command of because I'm a work in progress like all of us are. Yeah. And so I'll tell you what I think and what I'm working and striving towards, because that's a great question. I think you get lots of different answers, but I think it starts with extreme ownership. If you really want to lead a group, whether you're talking about a department or a division or to be a president, I think you have to have extreme ownership if you're going to lead people. Um, you've got to have the attitude that if we execute well and we're successful, that the team gets the credit because the team literally is, they're the ones that are executing. They're the ones that are following your directions, your leadership, and they are making happen the vision that you've set um, before them. So if they're executing well, they get the credit. If it's a failure, if uh, you didn't hit your, your sales goals or there's been a project that's been messed up, or if you just have, you're an underperforming company for the year or multiple years, well, that responsibility and the failure rests with you because you are the one casting the vision. You are the one leading on the strategic plans. And so if, you know, if someone hasn't executed, it was up to you to see, see it, to coach it, to make changes in the middle of the course, and uh, you're responsible for the outcome. So extreme ownership would be number one. Number two, I think, would be... Um, you have to be able to get outside yourself. You have to be able to see other people's opinions You and realize that different perspectives are going to help you make the best decision. I think early in my career, I felt so certain about being right sometimes that I, I didn't see other opinions because I thought I didn't need to. That's a mistake because you become a one-dimensional operator and you really want to be multi-dimensional so i think getting outside yourself and considering other perspectives seeing the issues through their eyes i think is is definitely something you need to do and at the same time when you're doing this i think the, another thing would be you have to have a sincere desire to understand and a sincere desire for the welfare and success of those people that you're leading I don't think you can be disingenuous and get away with it. I don't think you can go through the motions of saying, I'm really interested. Tell me about your life. Tell me about your goals. If you're not genuine, because they'll see right through you. 
I think you have to have a vision. You have to have vision and you have to anticipate. You have to anticipate two or three moves ahead so you can really lead. You know, I think you have to be certain. Uh, you have to have confidence. There's a level of certainty that you need to bring, even though you're looking for other perspectives, even though you want to, you know, sometimes you've got the collective and you're looking for a collaboration. At the end of the day, you make the call. And you've got to be certain about what that decision is going to be. You, you've got to communicate that confidence to the team. You know, in all that, I think you need to bring order and purpose. I believe that, um, I don't believe in chaos. I do believe that there's a, order is very effective and in in, to have a, a planning and meeting rhythm um, is important. It, it helps bring uh, that level of, security to the team to know that, hey, we every Monday morning we have this meeting and every quarter we have this meeting and, and every August we start our one year planning for the next year. And so have a real planning and meeting, meeting rhythm. And then I would say last, but certainly not least, this is probably the most important thing. I think you need to work on building your team. And that starts with the hiring process we call our hiring process hire to win and you need to hire people and have people around you that are as smart or smarter as talented or more talented than you are and you have to really hire people that you believe can can uh, replace you and that can do things beyond what your capabilities are that's how you're going to truly build a strong team and i think some leaders miss that they're maybe intimidated by hiring somebody that's that much smarter and more talented than they are. They find it hard to understand how they'll manage those people. But the reality is that's the secret sauce. Having the best team around you is going to make you better. And collectively, you're going to do some great things. Yeah, I, I love that list of competencies. So, so important. So along those lines, what are the characteristics that a great leader has? That's, a, that's another great question. Um, you know, when I'm interviewing people, I'll say, define yourself in character traits. And so often they look at you like they don't know what you're talking about. Um, it's like, what is a character trait? And, it's, it, and it's, it's too bad because that whole term has been lost, um, it seems, in, in this generation. But Again, these are character traits that I aspire to. These are things that I pursue, not that I've mastered. I would say you should be available to your people. You should be compassionate. You should be grateful. Of course, like I talked about, you should be enthusiastic. You should, you're asking them to be enthusiastic. Why wouldn't you be enthusiastic? You should be dependable, certainly responsible. Uh, I think patient. Uh, I think you should be persuasive. You know, you want to listen to other opinions, but you need to learn how to be persuasive. And in that, I don't mean forcing people, but coaching and teaching. You need to be, of course, truthful. And then, you know, I'm going to keep coming back to this. You need to be sincere and genuine, or it's just, it's, they're going to see right through you and it's not going to play. Yeah, that's a great list. Character traits aren't manufactured. They are developed through life experiences and being true to ourselves and uh, and yeah, so I think that's great. Absolutely. So 
As finance executives, how can we move beyond our technical left brain skills and develop more right brain social leadership? I think it comes back to um, investing yourself in the people in your organization. And what I mean by that is you should view your position as CFO as a position of service. You're literally serving the organization. So you should definitely communicate to the organization different functional heads that you want to be a resource and you want to um, help them achieve their goals. So you should you know, seek to be involved in cross-functional teams. And the more you do that, the more you make yourself available and engage in these different areas, then you're going to develop that, those soft skills. Um, you're going to develop and be exposed to the relationship side of things. As you're using your skill uh, as, a, as a finance pro to help them, you're developing the relationship and, and they're seeing that you're willing to spend your time um, helping them meet their goals. And I really think uh, that's going to make a difference. One of the things that I did early on, I mentioned it earlier, is I got involved in Toastmasters. And that was great organization. Really, it was a great organization. It is a great organization. And, and it was, it was a lot of fun and I got out of my comfort zone and, and I really developed some great friendships and it was, you know, you know, laughing and having a great time at the same time you're learning a, a skill. And then of course you're going to always develop some right brain relational skills just by serving. So Getting involved in that faith-based organization, Faith in Action, was a, a real help for me. And I served on um, local university board of visitors, Charleston Southern University. I think the, the more you do things like that, you're going to develop those skills and at least be exposed to people that are genuinely really good at, at that. And you know, being around people like that helps you um, develop those skills. Yeah, I've been involved in Toastmasters, and yeah, it's definitely an organization that will get you out of your comfort zone. No doubt. So in a profession that seems to thrive on structure, how can we get more comfortable with successfully dealing with and maybe actually enjoying ambiguity and complexity? Well, that's a, that's a, that's a complex question right there. Yes, um, it is. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, you know, I'll, I'll say this on the front end. I'm a strong believer in order and process and uh, structure. I think that is necessary no matter what. But I understand your question, I think. And I think you can be am ambiguous in the sense that you can have multiple views or understand that there are multiple views on a particular uh, subject or problem or challenge. Mm -hmm. And so you should be open to learning. And I think if you're, if you're open to learning, that will open up your access, if you will, to learning how to be better at that. And if, what I mean by that is this, if you're in a group and you're in a part of a cross-functional team and you're going at a challenge and you feel like you have a, a really strong solution and you feel certain about your solution, but there are eight other people on your team and they have eight other opinions, to take the time to really understand their perspective and to learn from them will do one of two things. It'll either change your mind and you'll see that you, your idea is going to be developed and expanded on and maybe your view was partly right. Or 
by learning their perspective and understanding their perspective and gaining their trust by showing that genuine interest, you're going to prove that what you believe to be right actually is right. And it gives you the opportunity to coach and teach them. And guess what? Since you took the time to understand their perspective, they're going to be way more apt to listen to your coaching and teaching because they're going to, they're going to know you're genuine in it. Yeah, and probably more likely to follow down the path you're, you're laying out, even though it might not have been what they wanted. Exactly. So I know we've touched on this a bit, but forging relationships across the organization is key to get to the top. And many finance and accounting professionals are still siloed today. So how can we break down the walls and forge these critical relationships? You know, I, I just think you've got to continue to work on finding friendships in the organization at the same time that you're working on your professional relationships. I think investing yourself in other people and, you know, taking what is important to them and making it important to you, taking the time to learn the metrics that different areas uh, are striving for, understanding their goals, helping them achieve their goals. I really think it'll get you outside of that silo. And not only that, but invite them into your world, share with them those metrics, those goals that you're striving for. Really communicate to them how they can help you achieve your goals. When someone understands why it is we say what we say and why we have these processes and controls in place and why we say no to certain things, the more they understand that, the more they feel like, you've invited them in and you respect them enough to explain it to them and, and really teach it to them, the more apt they are to respect it and adhere to it. And, you know, understanding on both sides is just, is just going to go a long way to getting outside of those silos and, and living in each other's worlds and really understanding each other's worlds. And really, I mean, we're, we're one team, right? We have a bunch of areas uh, that make up a company, but we are one team. And the CFO that sees himself as rising above and investing himself in the success of each functional area and taking ownership of that and being the owner of the relationship with the functional head, being the owner and learning what their goals and uh, metrics are that they're trying to meet and helping them meet them and then take responsibility for you know, teaching and coaching what you're trying to do as CFO of the organization. I think that removes silos. I think it forms friendships and um, I just think it has, has great results. Yeah, that's some really great advice. So that brings me to the last question. So accountants are known for being very compartmentalized and seeing things in black and white and focusing on managing risk. In the past, creativity and accounting are two things that haven't gone very well together. But CEOs, they need to be creative and they need to be focused on fostering and managing innovation. So how can we move from black and white to color? Hmm. That's a good question. And, you know, um, I'm listening to you ask that question. And I really, I've always believed this and I think it gets lost. I don't think managing risk and being entrepreneurial are mutually exclusive. I really don't. I think you need both. And I think if you have both, you're going to be a success whether you choose to remain as a CFO and, and be on that finance career path your whole career, or if you really do try to work towards being a general manager or a president or a CEO, I think you need both. I think you need to never lose sight of 
the things you've learned when it comes to managing risk. I think it gives you a great advantage when you're making long-term decisions, when you're, when you're sitting down and getting into very complex strategic plans, understanding the whole finance structure and understanding what it was that went into your thought process when it came to managing risk will help you be a better entrepreneur. I don't think it, I don't think it hurts you or I don't think it's the opposite of, I think they work together. Um, those skills that you acquire as CFO will serve you well as a president because um, they give you the advantage over those that, you know, they didn't live it, breathe it and don't understand it. So I think you should be really proud of being a CFO and the skills that you've learned and take them with you and um, be willing to get outside of yourself, be willing to get outside your comfort zone, be willing to see the organization through the lens and the eyes of those other functional heads. And as you learn their perspectives and as you learn the skills that they use to uh, master their areas, you know, you just take all of those together and, um, you know, use it to be the best leader you can be. Yeah, I like that. So managing, so really balancing managing risks with taking risks. Absolutely. And you can take risks much more effectively if you understand how to manage risk. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's great. So Gene, in closing, do you have any comments that you'd like to leave our listeners with? Um, I would, yeah, I would tie um, all of it together with, a, with this last thought. You know, one of my favorite books of all time, my favorite business books is called Start With Why by Simon Sinek. And I absolutely love this book. And I really think that in answering all these questions and in defining for yourself a pathway to wherever it is you want to go in your career, I think you need to establish for yourself your why, what it is you're trying to accomplish and why, because I think the why is the most important. And as you lead an organization, you need to help the organization establish its why. And out of that, what I've done is I've, I've got a written leadership purpose that I um, share with everybody. I share it with my team. I share it with the organization. And it's as simple as this. My leadership purpose as the president of the company is to help our associates unlock their potential, achieve their goals, and make a meaningful impact on the company and in the lives of the people they work with. That's my why. Yeah, that's great. And you, you sound like you're an amazing leader. So thank you for sharing that with us. Uh, Gene, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thanks, Megan. It's been great. I really appreciate you having me on. Yeah, I've loved today's topic. And personally, I've gotten so much out of our discussion. To all of our listeners today, I hope you've enjoyed today's episode as much as I did, and I hope you'll tune in next week. Until then, take care of yourselves and have a great week. If you're ready to boost efficiency and streamline your accounting processes at significant cost savings, it's time to talk with Personiv. Their people-powered solutions have transformed the delivery of back office tasks and general accounting functions for decades, partnering with clients to provide everything from accounts payable to payroll services. See what Personiv can do for you by visiting personiv.com. You've been listening to CFO Weekly presented by Personiv. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to hear all of our episodes. Want to learn more? Check out personiv.com. Thanks for listening.